Hello, and thank you for tuning in to a new episode of Polar Times, the Apex podcast. My name is Henrietta Hammond, and I am so excited for you to hear this episode, which has been a long time in the making. Now, I'm a PhD student in the UK, and I'm interested in Antarctic collections in British museums. But before I started my PhD, I was really more of an Arctic girl, and I spent almost two years living and working in different parts of northern Canada, including Whitehorse, which is home to the Yukon Beringia Interpretive Centre. And it was there in 2017 that I met Christy Greckel, who's the manager of the Yukon Beringia Interpretive Centre, and she later introduced me to Dr. Grant Zazula, manager of the Yukon Government Paleontology Programme. So this episode is an awesome coming together of all of their knowledge about anthropology, archaeology, paleontology, and this very cool place, Beringia. And there's also lots of good stuff about science outreach and some really interesting facts thrown in there too. Trust me, you will never look at Arctic ground squirrels in the same way again. So without further ado, Let's get into the episode. Hi, everyone, and thank you for, for tuning in to Polar Times today. Um, and thank you so much, Christy and Grant, for coming and speaking with me. It's lovely to see you both, and I'm really looking forward to the conversation today. Um, now, to kick things off, I know that you both have really interesting kind of backstories um, that have led you on quite a journey to get to the jobs that you currently have, your current roles. And I also know that they are surprisingly similar um, considering the slightly different jobs that you have now. So maybe you could kick things off by telling us a little bit about who you are, what you do and how you how you came to be here. Um, so Grant, why don't, you, why don't you kick things off? Sounds good, Henrietta. Um, yeah, how did I come to be here? How did I become a polar researcher? I guess that's what I am. I'm a paleontologist here in the Yukon that specializes on uh, the Ice Age and Ice Age mammals and the environments of the Ice Age. And uh, geez, I've been at this a long time. I've been at this for almost 20 years. Um, I was an undergraduate student in, at the University of Alberta in Edmonton um, in anthropology. And um, out of high school, I didn't really know what I was going to do with my life. I was, uh, I, I was a bit of trouble, I like to have a good time. But when I walked through those halls at the anthropology department the first time, and there was these displays of hominid skulls, Australopithecines and Neanderthals and all Homo erectus and all this, I was just blown away. I just thought I'd, I'd never really heard of something like that. That was, that was that it was something you could ever study. And so I went into anthropology and archeology, span uh, but the University of Alberta uh, was really, uh, really a great place for Northern studies. And we had a few uh, professors there, and this is going back uh, probably, I think I started in 1995 at the university as an undergrad. And uh, gee, that's a long, that's 26 years ago. Oh my, <laughs> luckily it's a podcast and you can't see my gray hair, um, but uh uh, we had a couple of professors that had spent uh, great parts of their career working in the Yukon and in Alaska and in, in the Arctic of Canada. And we heard these great stories of adventures and working up in the, in the North and working with First Nations people. And I became really just totally fascinated by this whole concept of uh, the initial peopling of the Americas, like that the fact that the, the North American continent did not have any people on it until some point near the end of the ice age. And then people 
across the Bering Land Bridge, and they were hunting woolly mammoths, and and they were living alongside Ice Age lions and saber-toothed cats, and this whole idea about uh, the first peopling the Americas. And at the time, in the late '90s, there was a lot of discussion about Yukon's role uh, in that story because there was archaeological sites that had these really, you know, tantalizing evidence for people living during the Ice Age. So. Um, when I was looking for a master's project, a uh, project to do for my master's thesis, I, I connected with a professor named Dr. Charlie Schwager, who's a, a paleoecologist. So he's a person that studies ancient kind of plants and environments and ecology of the Ice Age. And he said, you know, Grant, uh, you know, you ever been to Old Crow, Yukon? <laughs> and uh, I was a simple boy from Edmonton. I'd never really been anywhere before. And uh, so he bought me a ticket, a uh, ticket to the Yukon. And my project was, you know, it was kind of one of these old school ideas that we're going to send you north and we're going to go away for two months and you'll, you'll come back with a thesis project. And so that summer I, uh, I flew up to Whitehorse and then up to U, uh, Old Crow Yukon. And Old Crow is a, it's a fascinating place because it's a small village of only about 200 people. Uh, it's a fly-in community. You can only get there by airplane or dog sled or, you know, canoe, if you will. Um, and I was just, I, you know, I think as a, as a young Canadian boy, I had no idea what I was up against. I didn't, I didn't know anything about Northern Canada and uh, what the environment looked like or how did people live? I was just, you know, it was just, it was also new to me. And it was exciting because that summer I got a chance to work with geologists and paleontologists and archaeologists. I, I was, I was in, uh, on the river and out in camps in Old Crow for almost two months that summer. And it just totally changed my life. And the, I'll never forget sitting there on the banks of the Porcupine River. And I was kind of, you know, shy. I, I was working with a field crew of people I didn't know. Um, it was just all a new experience. And I remember walking down the beach and finding this woolly mammoth molar and going, this is real. All that stuff that they told us about at school, like, it's actually true. You can actually go to the Yukon, walk up and down the rivers and find woolly mammoth teeth that are hundreds of thousands of years old. And I remember writing it about that in my journal at the time. I think I wrote it in a, in a note to my girlfriend at the time back home and just being just totally, uh, just totally excited and thinking this is, this is kind of what I want to do. And, and uh, so I did a master's project and ended up doing a PhD working on paleontology in the Yukon. And then, yeah, three weeks, was it three weeks after I defended my PhD, I was interviewed for the job I have. And a few weeks after that, I drove up the Alaska highway from Edmonton with a little car and kind of everything I owned in the back of it. And drove up to Whitehorse and my wife, uh, Victoria was going to meet, she didn't want to drive with me. So she flew up <laughs> and, um, yeah, we, uh, we made a life for ourselves. We, we ended up moving here in 2006 and I've been here ever since doing ice age paleontology. <laughs> it's sort of a long winding narrative, but uh, you know, the, the Yukon and especially Northern Canada, it just kind of has a way of drawing people in. And once you're there, you're kind of stuck. It gets in your blood and, uh, and it just, becomes part of who you are. And, and uh, I can't imagine doing anything else now. It's kind of, this is what I do and who I am. I, I really love it. That's awesome. What a great story. I love that uh, summer in the Yukon 
change my life. <laughs> they should make that on t-shirts or something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah like, tourist t-shirts. Yeah. <laughs> Somewhere in Old Crow. Um, how about you, Christy? Did you find that the Yukon um, tugged you in in the same way that it did Grant? Yeah, I, I think so. <laughs> the Yukon, I'm, I've lived here a shorter time period than Grant. So about the last six years, but I think Grant is absolutely right. Once you um, make it up the Alaska Highway, again, from Edmonton <laughs> to the to the Yukon, um, it really does, it really does pull you in. And it, with my career, I, you know, 20 years ago had no intentions of um, <laughs> being in the Yukon <laughs> or um, managing a museum either. So I, started back um, back in 1999 when I graduated high school, a little bit different than Grant. I actually knew I really wanted to be an archaeologist. Like I remember the moment when I was reading back in the day, the university course catalogs weren't online. They were like big, thick books that you had to like thumb through to read all the different courses. And I remember sitting in my high school and reading the description for anthropology. And I was like, it was like a life-changing moment. Like, this is what I want to do. <sighs> there's a job, like a career that is like kind of studying all of this history. Like I just coming from a small town in rural Alberta was not something I was really exposed to. I did have an uncle who was like really keen on history and he would always talk to me about it. And, and, um, I remember like really enjoying hanging out with my uncle and talking about it, but he didn't really know what it was until I discovered that, um, in the university of Alberta catalog. So, I um, instantly signed up to go to the U of A and uh, started in anthropology with a focus in archaeology. So after my undergrad, I um, spent several years um, doing cultural resource management archaeology in um, Alberta. So what that means is I worked for a private archaeological company that was hired to do pre and post impact assessments on developments. So everything from like new housing developments to gravel pits to oil and gas. And we would go into the areas that were proposed to be developed and look for cultural and heritage types of materials and remains before the developers came in and disturbed the area. So during that time, I also completed my master's degree, again, at the University of Alberta. And for that degree, I chose to focus in on zooarchaeology. So really um, focus on the understanding of um, animals, animal-human relations, as well as a very deep dive into um, bison skeletal osteology. So I kind of really specialized in that and, and also the way humans and bison interacted on the prairies of Alberta in the past. And um, after that, <laughs> so I, between working and doing my master's over a course of, I think, seven or eight years then, I ended up going into a, working with a nonprofit organization called the Bodo Archaeological Society. And they're located in Alberta and their um, mandate was to help 
um, disseminate archaeology more to the public, give the public hands-on opportunities to participate in archaeology. So I was the director of that program for five years, and it was absolutely amazing to spend time um, working with the public, giving them the opportunity to actually excavate and um, learn about archaeology firsthand, because I found that um, the more people know about archaeology and the history, the more they want to protect it and be part of it, and it's not something foreign to them. So that was an absolute amazing opportunity. I met so many great people, and um, that project continues today, actually. Um, can look it up at bodoarchaeology.com, and it's a great opportunity to get some hands-on experience in archaeology. And in Canada and even North America, there's not that many opportunities to do hands-on archaeology as a member of the public. Um, and then from there, I was in the midst of that period of my life. I loved it. I was super happy. But I saw this ad <laughs> for the Yukon Berenci Interpretive Center. I was actually looking online for the wording of job postings, because I was writing some job postings for the Bodo Archaeological Society. And when I was doing that research, I came across this ad and I was like, hmm, this seems like a really interesting opportunity. So I decided to just um, apply for it. And uh, turns out they offered me the position. <laughs> and then I had to make a decision. Um, was I ready to leave Alberta and move to the Yukon, a place I knew very little about, um, had only ever been here um, one time before on just sort of a fun camping road trip. Um, but my husband and I decided like, seize the day, take the opportunity, we moved to the Yukon. Um, and I started managing the Beringia Center and came across Grant once again, because we <laughs> did go to the U of A at the same time. Um, there's a little bit difference in the um, different places we were in our education. So we didn't overlap a lot, but we knew of each other. And so we came across each other here again and have been working together ever since. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. The small world of polar science really does. <laughs> the, the, the Arctic in northern Canada is a really small network of researchers. And I think, you know, uh, once you kind of start doing work in the north, you kind of get connected to kind of the, the network of people pretty quickly because we all have kind of faced similar challenges and things like that. So, we you know, it's always good to connect and help each other out. Yeah, definitely. And I really like, Christy, that you're your journey to the north feels kind of just as serendipitous in a way, you know, happening upon that um, job advert online and, and thinking like, oh yeah, <laughs> maybe this is the thing for me. Um, and so one of the many, I mean, we've already covered a lot of them, but one of the many things that connects you guys um, in a professional sense now is obviously Beringia. Um, could you maybe give us a few words on what Beringia is or, or what it was? Sure. Well, Beringia is the term used to describe the region of the Bering Land Bridge. So today um, there's something called the Bering Strait, which separates uh, easternmost Russia or Siberia from Alaska. And it's a really narrow uh, strait of, of sea, of seawater. Um, you can, you know, on a good day, you can apparently see across from Alaska to Russia or vice versa. 
Um, you know, you can't see Russia from Sarah Palin's house. I'm not sure if you remember Sarah Palin, but uh, she did claim <laughs> you could do that at one time. Um, so, so Beringia is this landscape that was during the Ice Age because so much of the world's fresh water was locked in glaciers. So uh, say 20,000 years ago, there was a massive glacier covering most of Canada and parts of Northern Europe and things like that. And because all that water was locked up in ice, a sea level uh, was much depressed. So at the height of the last ice age, 20,000 years ago, the sea was about 120 meters below its present day level. So that exposed this land bridge that connects uh, Asia from to North America. So this bearing land bridge or Beringia, because of those reduced sea levels allowed uh, for plants and people and and animals to move back and forth between the continents. So when we talk about Beringia, we're really talking about this area that encompasses parts of Siberia, Alaska, and parts of the unglaciated portions of, of Yukon. So, uh, and, and Beringia has this really critical role to play in understanding the history of, uh, of animals in North America and Asia, because, you know, for, for, for example, many animals came from Asia uh, things like woolly mammoths or North American bison all originated in Siberia and they crossed the Bering Land Bridge and, and ended up in North America. And, and other animals evolved in North America, like horses and camels, and they were able to move across Beringia in the opposite direction over to Asia and Europe. So, uh, and, and of course, Beringia is critical for understanding the initial peopling of North America. So these first populations of indigenous people that entered North America during the Ice Age, they, they, uh, they, they, they were originally in Beringia. They moved across the Bering Land Bridge. So, and, and Beringia is named after a, a famous Danish explorer named Vitus Bering. So he was the guy that I think it was the, the, the Russian aristocracy asked him to map the coastline and he made the, the, the journey around the Bering Strait to the Arctic of of Russia and Siberia. So it was named after him. So it's Beringia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fascinating how those names really get into the landscape from completely unexpected places, isn't it? Um, I thought, well, thank you for that, Grant. That was such a great potted history, I think, of Beringia. Um, and, and Christy, you obviously work at the Yukon Beringia Interpretive Centre, which is just one of the coolest uh, place names that I know. Um, maybe you can <laughs> paint us a bit of a picture um, for, for all those listeners who, who are visiting um, through the airwaves today. What, what is it like at the, the Interpretive Centre? Yeah, sure, Henrietta. Um, well, you've been here before, so um, <laughs> which is exciting. But yeah, for those of you who haven't been here before, um, the Yukon Bridge Interpretive Center tells the story of the, the last ice age, as Grant talked about. So in the center, we have a lot of um, large megafauna skeletons. So some of our favorites, of course, are like the woolly mammoth and the giant short-faced bear and the giant ground sloth, scimitar cat, step bison. Um, so we like to try to bring those um, animals, which a lot of those are extinct now, kind of back to life um, with our interpretive programming and our tours so people can take a bit of a step back in time and see what life would have been like, um, you know, more than 10,000 years ago. And we have a lot of um, interactive exhibits and um, 
some wonderful First Nations artwork that also helps tell the stories of the early people entering Beringia. And actually in the last couple of years, we produced a new film for our theater, which was an absolutely incredible experience. Grant and I worked with some of our colleagues in archeology, span as well as a full team of Yukon filmmakers, which was just fabulous to work with a, um, kind of homegrown filmmaking team. So they really understood the story we wanted to tell and the story that should be told about Beringia. And we also collaborated with um, First Nations partners and we were able to tell um, what a really good story. I think we're all really, really proud of this film and we spent a lot of hard work on it. And anyone who visits the Beringia Center will get an opportunity to see it. But in addition to what you can see at the center, we've also become um, really active online and through our social media platforms. Some of that was um, COVID related, of course. <laughs> um, I think it forced a lot of museums around the world to, um, to use that dreaded word pivot and go a little bit more online. But that's been fun as well because um, we've started to do things like Beringia Center Science Talks where we in are able to engage with researchers who are researching Beringia and um, different Arctic research around the globe and to allow them a platform to share their research with the public and to our viewers on Facebook. And that community has just been growing and growing on both sides, both the viewers and the researchers that we've been working with. And so we're really proud of the development of that program over the last couple of years. Um, and in addition to that, we've been doing various just different types of online programming to share Beringian content and um, Yukon's history with people that way. Mm -hmm. That sounds awesome. I know that um, you are particularly passionate about science outreach, and I think that that definitely comes across um, just in, in the few questions that we've we've got from you so far. Um, spanning back, I guess, to that um, those early archaeological um, experiences that you had. I was wondering, how do you go about kind of setting up these, you know, that incredible film with all of those different um, kind of Indigenous voices and, and different people involved? How, how do you go about um, that process of uh, kind of inclusion in your in your outreach? Oh, yeah. Um, well, I think <laughs> I think I could start by saying I don't think either Grant or I ever thought in when we started our careers that we'd be making films on archaeology and paleontology and designing being part of teams designing exhibits for a museum on archaeology and paleontology. Nope, no idea that we'd ever be doing this. <laughs> this is not what we were trained to do, but we've we were figuring it out on the way, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we certainly are. And um, I think, like Red said, we, we've been learning as we go. And um, I can let Grant talk a little bit more about some of the relationships that he's been building with community members such as miners and First Nations community members, because a lot of those have been growing over the years that Grant has been managing the paleontology program, if, if you want to go into that for a bit, Grant. Yeah, yeah, a bit. Um... 
Yeah, I think, you know, one of the most important aspects of the research that we do, and we, you know, our program, uh, the paleontology program specifically, we go out and collect fossil bones and teeth and skeletons of Ice Age mammals all summer. And um, and that really falls within the kind of the history of partnerships that that have really played a really uh, critical role in, in, in scientific research here in the Yukon. And that really goes back to the gold rush of 1898. And when gold was first found in, in Yukon on Bonanza Creek and sparked this big gold rush and tens of thousands of people showed up in the Yukon, um, you know, there was lots of people out there in the hills scratching away at the frozen ground uh, trying to find gold. But they also started to find these amazing permafrost preserved uh, fossils of Ice Age animals like there's some great black and white historic photographs of these, you know, old timey miners with these, you know, woolly mammoth skulls and, and tusks. And, and that really sparked off a, a lot of international interest. So a number of uh, museums from around the world, like the Smithsonian and the Paris Natural History Museum, they all sent expeditions to the Yukon right at the turn of the last century. And uh, so that, you know, that that really started this uh, this concept of partnerships because, you know, these these scientists showed up at these gold mines, you know, interacting with these gold miners. And it became very clear that the gold miners do all the work. They're the ones digging and digging, and digging. And then these fossils are found. So uh, and that kind of continues today. So we're really indebted to the gold mining community that's out there using, you know, equipment and stripping away the permafrost and they're so, you know, really engaged in what we do. They're really excited about all the things that they find in the ground. And they're always very curious to know more. And, you know, I know a number of gold miners uh, in the Yukon that we work with very closely that, that grew up at these gold mines. And when they were young, 60 years ago, paleontologists were coming around their sites and talking to them and telling them about the cool things. So that kind of relationship is really critical and then the other piece to the relationship is, um, is First Nations people. And like I mentioned, these early expeditions to the Yukon by scientists, they, they after the gold rush, they went north to Old Crow. And um, because they had heard these stories about First Nations people talking about these, you know, kind of mythical monsters that are found in the ground there. And um, so paleontologists showed up at these, at this, you know, a village like Old Crow and they would be totally lost if it wasn't for the First Nations people. So, you know, the Vuntikwichin, they, you know, interacted with these early scientists and took them out on boats on the land to go collect fossils and things like that. And, and that kind of relationship still exists today, where we work very closely with First Nations people because, you know, they, it's their backyard, it's their land, they know all about it. So, um, they can help uh, get us to locations. Uh, they also have, you know, there's also these amazing stories in these communities. And, you know, I think one of the most remarkable stories goes back um, in the mid 60s, a, a paleontologist who worked for the National Museum named Dick Harrington, Dr. Richard Harrington, who's a kind of a infamous guy in Canada. Um, he was on, sitting on the banks of the river in 1967 uh, in the town of Old Crow, the village. And an old guy came up to him and started telling him about a story of this big monster that he knows about that's on the, the Whitestone River, which is a, a couple days kind of expedition or boat trip uh, away from the village. And, you know, Dick kind of thought, oh, this is interesting. You know, what's the story about a monster? So they got in their boat, uh, him and a few assistants, and they took the journey to Whitestone Village. And sure enough, they pulled their, their boat up to the side of the river 
and there was a partial woolly mammoth skeleton coming out of the permafrost. And, and, you know, and so this kind of idea that these animals aren't quite, they're not dead. They're not quite alive. They're sort of mythical. They sort of live in this sort of mythical place that they, they, they may serve a lot of purpose. So these stories have been passed on for generations. And, you know, you can imagine like the indigenous people, the first nation people, they've been boating up and down those rivers for hundreds and thousands of years. Right. So, and they've seen these giant woolly mammoth bones and they saw those like they're hunters, they hunt caribou, they, they hunt moose. So when they, they know what a skeleton of a caribou looks like. And then when they, they know a caribou bone is this big and they find a bone that's 10 times that alongside the river, of course, they're going to be telling stories about mythical monsters and, because they know they're they're anatomists, they know a lot about skeletons. So you know it's it's those those stories about with First Nation people that interaction with First Nation people and the gold mining community really kind of makes this stuff work. Because without the thorough participation and engagement and interest and and in some ways permission from the First Nations people, none of this research would get done, and we wouldn't be able to tell these stories at the museum like the Beringia Center because so much of what we know about Beringia. Um, can be attributed to the the partnerships with gold miners and, and First Nation people. Yeah, absolutely. That's such an important way to think about the knowledge that we're creating or the knowledge that we're um, learning from Indigenous people. And, and I think it's really important, as you say, that that gets properly um, kind of credited and, and understood, um, especially in places like the Interpretive Centre. <laughs> Um, I was just thinking about your kind of mythical monsters and and how that idea gets sort of whispered through history. I remember when I visited the uh, Interpretive Centre hearing a really good story about um, a certain uh, American president and a large <laughs> um, skeleton in your collection. Maybe, Christy, you could tell us about that. Oh, actually, I think the story would probably come better from Grant. <laughs> <laughs> well... Yeah, the president, uh, was it Jefferson, was the third president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson. And he was a, an interesting guy. He had a, he had a little estate outside of Washington, D.C. And he was really interested in, in ancient history. And at the time, in the Hudson River Valley in New York, um, there had been, uh, people had been finding molars, teeth of woolly mammoths and mastodons. And and then there was another site that was found called Big Bone Lick in, in Kentucky. And it was this mm-hmm. sort of a sinkhole where all these animals had, had died and people had been collecting their fossils. So in the early like 16, 1700s in the States, you know, there were these all these kind of interests in these ancient animals. And Thomas Jefferson was really, really keen on them. And he was he was collecting. He has an amazing he had an amazing fossil collection that's now uh, curated by the National Museum uh, system in, in the U.S. And so he was really curious about these animals, like uh, American mastodons and these giant uh, ground sloths. And uh, in particular, um, uh, this giant ground sloth known as Megalonyx jeffersoni was given the name uh, Megalonyx jeffersoni in honor of Thomas Jefferson because he was so enchanted by this animal. It's a six or eight foot tall ground sloth. It's an amazing animal. It's something totally unheard of in the Americas at the time. So at that time, uh, uh, Lewis and Clark were, you know, these uh, adventurers that were about to set across the, uh, 
the continent to go see the Western shores of the United, United States and kind of map out the United States. So when Thomas, Thomas Jefferson met with uh, Lewis and Clark prior to their expedition, he told them, you know, you might want to look out for some eight foot tall sloths because we have these bones here in the Hudson River Valley and in Kentucky. And, you know, you never know. We've heard these stories about the Wild West out there, uh, the western parts of the United States. And just keep your eye open because you might find one living there today. You might find a, a mastodon living there today because we don't know. We don't. They The concept of extinction wasn't quite there yet. Right. They didn't really consider these animals to be extinct because, you know, their, their knowledge of the past was basically the Bible. Um, you know, they, they, they didn't know about, you know, extinctions like dinosaurs and, and, and all that. But so I think this idea that they told them, to, you know, you might run into an eight foot tall ground sloth on your way to California. It's a pretty wild idea. And I love that uh, Jefferson is given that name, uh, Megalonyx Jeffersoni for this, uh, this ground sloth. And, and the connection to Beringia with that is, uh, you know, there was a number, there was a dozen, there's, I think, eight different uh, uh, ground sloths living in the United States the, uh, during the Ice Age. And there was more in Central America and South America. But Megalonyx jeffersoni, the Jefferson ground sloth, is the only one that made it to the Arctic. So uh, during these warm times of the Ice Age, these kind of warm interludes called interglaciations, animals migrated north. And one of those animals that migrated north was uh, this uh, megalonyx uh, ground sloth. And there's been fossils of it found in Alaska and in, in Yukon and the Northwest Territories. And it's a pretty amazing idea to think of an eight foot tall ground sloth living in the winter in Beringia in this deep snow and blowing cold and glaciers. Uh, what a remarkable sight. But I, I you know, I, I I've never actually picked up a sloth bone before. They're very rare up here. And I'm, I really want to collect one one time, but it must've been, I would, I really wish we could see a live one. You know, the, the idea that they were still hiding in caves out West still kind of intrigues me. And you never know, maybe it's going to be like the elusive Bigfoot. We might find a ground <laughs> sloth living in the, the hills of California. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The Bigfoot of the Yukon or something like that. Yeah, I wasn't or, like or the Yukon. What an, in, what an intimidating way to send someone off on a long journey as well. Just like, oh, and while you're out there, just like keep an eye out for a, an eight foot tall yeah. sloth, uh, just in case. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> With claws that are like sabers, you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, Christy, there is a, a cast of um, the bones of a sloth in the center. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. It's, mm -hmm. it's probably one of our more like spectacular casts because it's mm -hmm. so dramatic and people most people have, don't really know that there were giant ground sloths um, during these warm periods in the ice age so a lot of people approach it and they're just like in awe like what is this animal you know and and never yeah. seen anything like it before and we also have a reconstructive painting associated with the skeleton so it gives people a bit of an idea of what the um, sloth um, looked like with you know, with flesh on it. But yeah, like Grant said, just imagine that hiding out in a in a cave somewhere. <laughs> and I think a lot of people who visit the center, when they see that skeleton, the first thing they do, they assume it's a carnivore because it has these huge claws. It's like, you know, almost like bear claws that could rip into you. And if you're, if you, if you want some entertainment, there's YouTube videos out there of like reconstructed 
ground sloths fighting giant bears and things like <laughs> that. But, wow. but we know based on its biology, these claws were more of a defensive sort of mechanism because they were herbivorous. They were only eating plants. They would use their, they had these strange peg-like teeth and they would take a, a branch with leaves on it and sort of strip the leaves off through its tr- the peg-like teeth. So they're completely herbivorous, totally, you know, they were, they're not going to attack anyone. They're not going to, you know, prey on anybody, but they can definitely defend themselves. Uh, I, I would assume because they have these claws and I, you know, I think they, where other ground sloths have been found, uh, there's a site in Chile in South America called uh, Mylodon cave. So Mylodon is another one of these ice age ground sloths. And there was actually a hair and skin found in that, in that cave. So uh, we know that it had really thick fur, really thick skin. So, you know, those are kind of defensive mechanisms for the saber tooth cats that have been, you know, trying to gnaw at their legs, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you would need some with me. <laughs> to, to yeah, probably. <laughs> well, that certainly, that cast obviously made quite a big impression on me when I was there. Chrissy, I was wondering, I know that um, you mentioned that um, kind of human and and bison relations is one of your kind of specialist interests. And I was wondering if you had a particular um, part of the collection at the centre that is is your favourite thing or your favourite object or artefact that you could tell us about. Oh, yeah, sure. And um, surprisingly, I'm not going to say it is bison in this this scenario. Although, um, because bison um, fossils are one of the most common um, ice age fossils we find, mm-hmm. um, we do have uh, like thousands of bison remains in the collection, and we're always looking for a creative way to exhibit more of them at the Beringia Center. Um, but I think right now um, it's really fascinating some of the ice age mummies that we have on exhibit at the Beringia Center. So. Um, over the the last few years, some of the mining work in the Klondike has um, exposed a caribou calf mummy, a wolf um, juvenile mummy, as well as part of a horse mummy. So um, that's really unique because often paleontological remains consist primarily of bones, but as Grant said, um, there are times where things like hair and fur are preserved, and that's really um, much more common, I guess, in the Arctic because of the permafrost. So the fact that these remains have been frozen for thousands of years um, has allowed them to preserve as well as, you know, the day that the animal died in some cases. So with some of these um, um, animals, especially our little wolf pup, who is um, referred to as Shur in the Toronto-Quichen language, and um, and we all refer to her as Shur, of course. Um, I know that we've been able to do a lot of different tests on her to look at things like, you know, is, it, is she a female or a male? So we know that our little wolf m- mummy is a female, Um, It's a little bit harder to determine the cause of death, but she was quite young and it's likely that maybe just her den collapsed or something like that and she was stuck in there, um, therefore 
actually allowing her to preserve it quite well because she wasn't scavenged by any carnivores or anything like that. So I just think it's absolutely amazing. And of course, mummies like these are also found in Alaska and in Siberia and lots of different animals have been found. Um, but as Grant spoke about earlier, some of the miners have been doing it for so long that it's great when they see something that's really unusual um, to, to stop and take a cl closer look at it, because that's how we've been able to find these really, really unique um, and rare specimens. Yeah, it's really that specialist knowledge that, that highlights those things then. Uh, and, and brings them to our attention so that we can we can share them with everybody else. I feel like I have so many more questions to ask you, but I think we're we're running close um, to time, and, and so I think just for the very final one, um, can you tell me? And and you're welcome to have uh, a few seconds to think about this because it's quite a big question. Can you tell me the best fact that you have learned? through your work in the Yukon or through your work uh, at, the, at the center? Grant, maybe you could go first. The best fact, wow. Yeah, you know, um, there's been some really cool discoveries, you know, that the, you know, not much, just myself, uh, but like colleagues of mine, and they're not always just single fossils that were discovered. You know, sometimes a single fossil is really spectacular and tells us a lot. Sometimes there are studies involving hundreds of fossils and trying to look at populations. And, you know, we, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of, you know, a lot of the work that's been done on the fossil collection here. And, and it's really because we have so many cool things to study and it's really easy for us to say, Hey, you know, do you want to come join us on this project and work on this or work on that? And uh, so you know, as a as a collective, we've we've been able to achieve some really cool things. For example, uh, we've recently learned, based on uh, DNA uh, preser preserved in the permafrost near Dawson City, that uh, woolly mammoths and horses um, survived in the Yukon about six thousand years after the ice age. So we find woolly oh, mammoth wow. DNA preserved in soil that's five thousand years old. So uh, where where extinctions were at the end of the ice age so these massive extinctions of ice age animals and uh in many parts of the world these animals well all died out but we know that in certain places like siberia they kind of hung on for a few thousand years later and we know they did that in the yukon we also uh, one of my colleagues uh back in 2006 found a bison foot bone uh, fossil and it was beneath a volcanic ash bed that dates to about 150,000 years old and that makes it the oldest bison fossil in North America. So, you know, prior to this time, uh, North America had a lot of woolly mammoths and had a lot of horses living here. But then bison made their way across the Bering Land Bridge. And then when they got to North America, they kind of took over the continent. They became the largest, they became the largest mammal in North America. And they became, you know, at the, if you go back to the 1800s in North America, there was millions of bison living on the Great Plains. But we know based on this one fossil from near Old Crow, Yukon, they arrived here about 160,000 years ago. And I think that's a really cool thing to be able to say, this is the, the first evidence for something somewhere. And so that's one of the, the coolest things, I think. Uh, yeah. Yeah. 
that's one of the coolest things. I think that definitely qualifies as a cool fact. Yeah, that's awesome. And I love, I really love thinking about, you know, the migration of, of species across that bridge and the impact that it had then on, on the world as we know it. Yeah. I can, I can also oh, say one other cool thing because I really like it too, and, I, and I'm, I'm kind of this, I'm just sort of in that mood right now. <laughs> so we've been doing some really cool work with a, a foundation called the Canna Foundation, and they're a, a, a horse conservation uh, group in the United States, and they're really trying to do a lot of scientific work on horses, especially ancient horses to understand horses in North America. And we recently learned that... Um, so we know that horses were domesticated in Asia, in Central Asia, about 5,000 years ago, based on archaeological evidence. But what we've learned based on DNA from fossils found in Yukon is that the original population of horses that uh, eventually that crossed the Bering Land Bridge into Asia and then eventually became domesticated came from the Yukon. So that ancestral population of horses that became domesticated later in history was a Beringian animal. And I think that's really cool because it really highlights those connections across the Bering Land Bridge. But it also really brings it home that horses are really a North, North American a, uh, animal and we should do more to protect and conserve uh, wild horse populations that are here today. So yeah, that's another absolutely. something I'll throw in there. <laughs> no, that's really, that was such a great bonus fact. <laughs> I think we, we all <laughs> bonus <enjoy it>. facts. <laughs> And also like, so great to think every time you see a horse now, that's a tangible link um, to Beringia and, and all this, all this fantastic science. Um, so Christy, go on, have you got a, a, an equally good fact to tell us? Well, I hope so. And I think Grant <laughs> likes this fact as well. And I'm going to share it because it, doesn't focus on a large mammal, <laughs> which is often we do talk a lot about large mammals in Beringia, but I know this is something Grant has spent a lot of time researching, but before moving to the Yukon and, and studying Beringia more, it's not something that like we learned in university, but Arctic ground squirrels are actually a huge treasure trove of information about the ice age. Um, because these tiny little ground squirrels create tunnels and they hibernate in the winter and they build up these large um, seed caches. And so when these seed caches are found, preserved in the permafrost, um, researchers are able to get a lot of um, paleoenvironmental data from those seed caches. So these tiny, tiny animals and their, their little homes um, actually give us so much information about what the environment was like back um, during the Ice Age. So I think that's a really cool fact and um, something that not everybody thinks about. Yeah, these squirrels are like little, little plant collectors during the Ice Age and they collected all these seeds and leaves and stems and stored them in these nests and caches underground and yeah they like christy said they provide this really great details on the types of plants that were living during the ice age kind of the ones that sustained populations of mammoths the one the plants that the mammoths were eating so that connection is really cool with the little squirrels yeah, yeah that's ones. awesome <laughs> really cool and, and you're right nice to have a, a slightly smaller um, mammal to end on because I feel like we've been <laughs> dominated by some quite big players <laughs> today <laughs> um, well thank you so much so so much Christy and Grant that's been 
such a fascinating um, conversation. I've really enjoyed every minute, every fact. And, and thank you uh, to our listeners as well. Thank you um, for listening in on this uh, excellent conversation today. And if you are listening, don't forget that you can like, rate and subscribe um, to the Polar Times on your podcast app of choice. And if you have any questions for Polar people, any feedback, or if you're interested in being on the podcast, then please contact us on thesearepolartimes at gmail.com. That's thesearepolartimes at gmail.com. And don't forget that you can also contact Apex on Twitter at polar underscore research. Thank you so much again, Lucy and Grant, and thank you for listening. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you. Please note that whilst this is an Apex production, the views and opinions expressed by the host and any guests are entirely their own and do not represent the views or opinions of Apex or any other host institution mentioned.